This is Parsha Panorama, and this week's Parsha is Parsha's Bow. And we have a lot of questions to address, especially a question that we left off with last week, so we'll have to discuss all of that. One thing I want you to consider while we try to break down and understand the role of Parsha's Bow as a Parsha is just in the name of the Parsha itself. The name Bow, which literally means come, is obviously not such a creative name for a Parsha. Um, or you might say it's creative in the sense that it's unexpected, but it's not very, it's not an original word in, in, in Chumash, even in this story, right? In the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim in the Exodus, this is the third time that Hashem is telling Moshe Rabbeinu, Bo El Paro. So there's nothing particularly noteworthy about this as a beginning of a Parsha. And pair that with what we addressed last week, we we began addressing, and that is that we are up to Maka number eight. So we stopped the Parsha of Parsha's Ve'era at the end of Maka number seven, and we were confused as to why we would do that, because not only is the breakdown of the Makos uneven, you know, maybe we would have suggested if we had to put the Makos into different Parshas, maybe a 50-50 split, but even um, if, not, if we're not going to do that, at least keep to one of the, uh, the systems, right? We have Datsach, Adash, Ba'achav, right? Rabbi Yehuda's um, three um, signs, the mnemonics, to remember the three sets. Something that we didn't address so much last week, which we probably should have, is Rav Hirsch, who explains that the Makos can be broken down into these three sets of Geras, Avdus, and Inui, three things that the um, that the Mitzrayim did to us. So each of them, um, in each set of the Makos, there was you know there are there are three, and so um, one Mako of each set represents Geras or being estranged. The other is uh, or what the, uh, one of them is Avdus, the, the slavery, and one of them is Inui, the oppression. Also, the three sets, which I think all, basically all the Mefarshim comment on, is the idea that there were three goals that Hashem wanted to communicate to Paro and really to the world when he delivered the Makos. One, that I am Hashem, in fact, I exist. Two, that I am involved in the land. And three, that there's no one like me in the land. So we have these three sets clearly. And yet, it's in the middle of set number three um, that that um, we have a new parsha, parsha's bow. Right, the final set begins or began. It begins or began. Um, so, yeah, for grammatical purposes, um, it begins or began with Makas Barad, and that's when uh, you know before Makas Barad, Hashem says, "I'm about to give you Kol Magevosai, all of my plagues. I'm about to hit you with." And Barad is the beginning of that, but Barad is the end of Parsha's Vaira. So why exactly did we end the Parsha in the middle, Mamish in the middle of the Makos, and um, in the middle of, of a set of Makos? It's, it's really not Mamish in the middle of the Makos, it's really more towards the end, but not quite. We might, we might have put Makas Bechoros in a separate in a separate section. So maybe we could have st- um, started the Parsha with Parsha's Makas Bechoros, um, um, or something to that effect. We're going to give, we're going to strengthen the question in just a moment, but I, I, I want this question to be on your mind because this is really important for understanding what Parsha's bow is about beyond the rest of the, um, you know, beyond the rest of the story that we had in Parsha's Vaera, right? Because is Parsha's bow really just Parsha's Vaera part two? Or is Parsha's bow um, really... Um, hinting to 
a new start. We are actually, um, in a certain sense, we are switching gears or, or changing directions or zeroing in on something. Any of the above, what is Parsha's bow doing for us? And what I think, and it, it, it'll become apparent soon, but what we are looking at is something new with Parsha's bow, something that pertains to the formation of Klai Israel the real formation that we've been waiting for, and it's going to take place through this final set of makos, and also through the first set of mitzvos that Kalal Yisrael receives as a nation. We'll talk all about that as we begin to answer our questions. First, let's get to the specifics of the Parsha. Actually, before we do that, um, we should um, grant Hakar Satovar, it is due, to our sponsors, Yona and Chani Laster and Yaakov and Yafa Landau. Thank you so much for sponsoring. Anyone else who wants to sponsor, just reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. You know, the data, then base, B-E-I-S, at gmail.com. Okay, now let's get to the specifics of the Parsha. So I have seven sections, and these sections, again, the way I divide them, you know, it, it, you could think of it as being arbitrary. You can divide it in your own way. Um, so, again, before I get to the sections, actually, I said that in a certain sense, Parsha's bow really contains two main parts. There's the narrative part and there's the mitzvos part. We, we, you know, the, the Torah switches gears in our Parsha for the first time to give us a lot of laws. And they all largely pertain to the Karban Pesach. And as we'll see, we're going to, we're going to, as we always do in Parsha Panorama, even though there might be two major sections, um, as we look at the Parsha through the panoramic view, we're going to make them as seamless as we possibly can. Anyway, let's get to the sections. I have seven sections. Section number one I have is Makas Arbe, the plague of locusts. That's the beginning topic in our Parsha. Then number two, section number two is Makas Choshech. Then section number three is when we start segueing into laws. We don't go straight to Makas Bechoros, but we have Parshas HaChodesh. Right, um, this is what we lane about from just before Rosh Chodesh Nisan. We have all the Hilchos Karban Pesach. And then the Chumash transitions back to narrative and then teaches us Makas Becharos. So section number four is Makas Becharos, the plague that, that struck the firstborns. Um, and the question that we have to consider, another question at least, is why the Hilchos Karban Pesach had to take place before Makas Pechoros. It almost seems like it's an interjection in the story. And, you know, Makas Pechoros is one of the plagues. So shouldn't we keep all the plagues together? Maybe you might say that Makas Pechoros is different, which, of course, it's different. But maybe we should, you know, like maybe all the laws that are derived from the story should be taught afterwards. So there's an obvious answer to this question that we'll get to. Um, Number five is the exodus, the actual walking out of Egypt. So Klai Israel, they march out of Egypt in Parshas Bo. Some people may not realize that that it, it's the exodus actually begins in Bo, um, not in Beshalach. Beshalach, we're already well on our way. Um, and then, but, but in the meantime, Parshas Bo is where we actually start walking out. And um, this, so that's what happens there. And the Chumash tells us that that happens after 430 years. I, I thought it was 210 years that they were enslaved in Egypt. Yeah, but you know what? Sometimes um, even things that predate you, you can say that something is 430 years in the making, even though um, the people who were experienced the slavery only experienced it for 210 years. And, um, you know, the, the idea that this goes back to the Brisbane Havasarim, um, so, and the, the time of Yitzchak's birth, really, that is when uh, we calculate the years of the Gullus from the Brisbane of Asarim. So 
Anyway, that's the Exodus. Five of oh, section six, we we transition back to laws. So this is interesting. We have the we we had laws just before Makas Bechoros. We get more laws right after the Exodus. Um, so we have Chukas HaPasach. We learn other Hilchos Karban Pesach here. Who's allowed to eat it? Has to be a circumcised Israelite. Um, you know, household member. Where and how do you eat it? Has to be eaten. Um, in one's house without breaking the bones. And then after that, we have section 7, which is tefillin in the Kiddushas Bechor, where we learn about Peter Rechem and Peter Chamor, basically all the things that, that are derived from the concept that Hashem designated the firstborns to be His own. Once He redeemed us, so all of our firstborns belong to Him, which is why we have the mitzvah of Pidyon Haben, um, which Baruch Hashem I was to do for my son um, a little over a year ago. Um, but, but that, but that all the laws we have are pertaining to Kedushas Bechor. So one question that I didn't want to spend as much time on, so I'm just going to throw it out here now, um, is why we went from laws back to story and then back to laws. Shouldn't we keep all the laws together? So there's, I think there are two parts to the answer to this question, but I want to talk about why the second section that has laws of Hilchos Pesach, so why are those separated from the other laws of Hilchos Pesach? So, very just to keep it simple, Rashi just points out that the second, uh, uh, the first section of laws were actually taught on the first of Nisan on Rosh Chodesh, whereas the second section is taught on the fourteenth of Nisan, right before Pesach. So that 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 might explain why they are put separately. The Ramban has an answer talk. He talks about how the really all the mitzvahs should be should have been saved for the end, but but the Torah wanted to juxtapose the Klal bitachon to Hashem's havtacha that something good would happen for them. And you should look at other mafurshim. The Ibn Ezra and the Sfarna they both have a similar comment about how really most of the laws that we find, even though there's overlap, but most of the laws we find in the beginning of Bo that pertain to Karban Pesach are really about the, um, uh, the, it's, uh, the, the Pesach Mitzrayim as, the, as opposed to the Pesach Doros. The Gemara in Pesachim in Sadi Vava Medalef, and there's a Tosefta in Pesachim, um, that this is in, in um, Perk Ches, and it's in Tosefta Brisa, I guess, number Zion and Ches. It talks about the difference between Pesach that was celebrated in Mitzrayim and the Pesach that's celebrated for Doros for generations to come. So, for example, we don't put blood on our doors anymore, on our doorways, which would be kind of cool if we did that. But that was something that was only for the the, the generation that celebrated Pesach in Mitzrayim, right? So, so the and so basically, the Menazer and the Svarna they both have similar comments that suggest that the new laws are focusing on the the um, the future generations of Pesach, who, of those who are going to celebrate Pesach. And then there's Rav Hirsch on this who, who, who gives some hashkafa. He talks about how the second section of Hilchos Pesach is, is focusing on the Jewish community and the homes, which was important now, especially for the influx of Erev Rav. So the Chumash highlights at this point um, that, uh, that the laws of a geir are the same. And, and anyone who joins the Jewish nation, so they also have to keep the laws of Karban Pesach, and all of those are recorded at the end of the Parsha. Anyway, those are just some ideas on that. But now we have to go back to some of our, our big picture questions. And so I have a couple of big picture questions. Um, firstly, going back to what we said earlier, that why did we divide the Makos or the Sidros between Makos number seven and, and Mako number eight? Now, I want to strengthen that question right now. And I'll ask another question that is that 
if we could have divided up the parashios, so we gave some alternatives. I want to suggest what I think is the best alternative to what the Masorah actually did. Perhaps Parsha's bow should have begun with Hachodesh, meaning the bow el paro, makas arbe, makas choshech, those all should have been in Parsha's ve'era. And the order would be Shmo's ve'era hachodesh. Now, I think the, you know, it makes a lot of sense, and I'll defend my suggestion right now. We said that Bo, which literally just means to come, so there's nothing particularly noteworthy about that as a name of a parsha, but Hachoshech, uh, Hachodesh, sorry, not Choshech, that was one of the Makos, Hachodesh naturally announces itself, or where, you know, Hashem starts a new conversation with Moshe Aaron and says, this month is going to be the month, um, it's going to be the first of months, and this is where Hashem starts teaching them all the laws of Karban Pesach. This is all the intro to Makas Bechoros. This would have been a great place to start a Parsha. So Shmos Vaera HaChodesh B'Shalach. And it would have, you know, it would have been really, it would have been really nice. It would have worked out really well. So why didn't the Chumash, in fact, do that? Now, while we're thinking about that, I want to throw out another question, which, um, um, which, um, at least at some point in time, you know, um, I, I'm still figuring out as I'm as I'm saying this what title I'm going to use. But one of the titles that I had considered is "Did God Bully Paro?" So I'll explain exactly what I mean in a second. But keep this question on the in the um, on the back burner while um, we begin addressing the first question. And so all of this, um, these, these questions pertain to really the beginning of the Parsha, the narrative, the makos that we're still trying to decipher right now. The other half of the Parsha, which deals with all the laws of Karban Pesach, so here's the other big question that we have to consider. And that is, we know that probably the most famous feature of our preparation for Karban Pesach was, in fact, the blood on the doorway. Again, something that we don't do nowadays. Um, that's something that was specific to the story um, in Mitzrayim. And why? Why were they putting the blood on the doorway? So the Pashat reason was that um, it, Hashem said it should be a sign. It should be a, you put a sign in the doorway, I'm going to see the signal, and then you won't be smitten, you won't be smote, you won't be stri- um, stricken by Makas Bechoros, everyone in your house is going to be okay if you just, um, you know, if, if you just put the blood on the door. So the question is very simple. If God knows everything, why did we need blood on the doorway to identify ourselves? Uh, you know, it's just, it just seems silly. It seems not just silly, but um, theologically challenging that God would require something like that, um, that we have this sign on the doorway. It, seem, it just seems a little bit strange. So that's something to consider for all the second half of the Parsha. And of course, why the laws are interwoven into the narrative also a very strange feature. Just um, from a you know from a, a narrative standpoint, you're looking at the story. Um, it, it is a little bit funny. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. We have this new parsha, parsha's bow, and we're like, okay, we, you know, we're kind of in the middle of a story. Hashem says bow el paro, right? So, what exactly is particularly noteworthy? Why is this the beginning of the parsha? Was parsha's ve'era just too long, and this is where we had to cut it, and we just made the mark? by the end of Barad. So one thing that I think is important is that normally the other couple of times that Hashem told Moshe Bo'el Paro, so he told Moshe Bo'el Paro in the context of 
here's what you're about to do. You're about to warn Paro about the next plague. Now, if you look really closely at our Boel Paro, so our Boel Paro sounds a little bit different. So look, let's take a look. It's in Parak Yud, Pasuk Aleph. And so it's a new Parak, and it's a new Parsha. Vayomer Hashem Moshe Boel Paro. And it's not followed by an instruction. What's it followed by? Boel Paro, come to Paro. Kiani hechbarate eslibo. Because you know, I have, at this point, I have made his heart heavy. And even the heart of his servants. Why? In order that I could put my signs in... In, in his midst, Willeman, and in order, and in order that you should be able to tell in the ears of your sons and the sons of your sons that I, Asheri Salalti, what's his Salalti? So Rashi says, Sachakti. And he, he explains that the word means to make sport of, to mock, to toy with. I want you to know, and I want, I want you to be able to tell everyone that I, I made a mockery of, of Mitzrayim, and my signs, which I placed against them, you should know that I am Hashem. Okay, so stop there. Hashem prefaces this next maka, which is about to be Arba. And the next, very, very next Pasuk, Moshe and Aaron just tell Paro that, yeah, Arba is coming. It's interesting to know that Hashem doesn't even um, particularly mention Arba explicitly. There are some of Farshim that address this question where, um, you know, why Hashem didn't mention Arba. But Moshe mentions Arba. But before we get to that, Hashem just says, I want, I want you to know I made Paro's heart heavy, and I had a couple of reasons for doing that. Now, the reasons sound a little bit interesting, because we asked a question a little earlier. Is, is Hashem, Chas Vashem, a bully um, against uh, Paro? Because Hashem is saying here, guess what, I made his heart heavy. And why? I just wanted, you know, I, I wanted everyone to know that I made a mockery of him. Right? So, what exactly is that all about? So we'll have to address that in a moment. But I want to prove to you that this is in fact what Hashem is doing. And you can see it specifically between Barad and Arba. Right? Because, you know, it's, it's a famous idea that Hashem hardened the heart of Paro. This is a question that we addressed last week. Was Paro's free choice removed? Was it not withdrawn from him? Right, the Sepharno says that really the hardening of Paro's heart actually enabled him to, to withstand the Makos and then make his own decision. In other words, Paro's free choice was enabled by the hardening of his heart. Not everyone says this. The Rambam was famous for saying that no, um, uh, Hashem did in fact take away Paro's free choice at this time when at least the, mo- the moment that Hashem in fact hardened Paro's heart actively. Um, so he, he in fact took away his free choice because Hashem has that liberty that once a, a, a person has made enough actual real-life free choices to be evil and to do evil things, at a certain point Hashem does take away your free choice if you don't do teshuva early enough. And that's a fact what happened here. So the time that Hashem hardened Paro's heart, this is already after Paro had already made, it, made, made enough bad decisions on his own. And Hashem can do that. And by the way, even then, it's not that that, that tshuva is completely withheld from you, but it makes it very, very, very hard for you to do tshuva at that point. We could also say that maybe um, just the very fact that Hashem eased Paro into the Makos, right? We spoke last week about how Hashem threw some easy, you know, some, some, uh, some easy pitches to Paro 
um, 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 tricks that were uh, that were easy to duplicate through black magic. So Hashem threw some easy ones before He threw the hard balls. So that they, all of these might have contributed to the hardening of Paro's heart. And this, and why we we said that Hashem has no intention to coerce anyone. So you know, Hashem doesn't want to coerce Paro, but Hashem actually wants Paro to make a free choice to admit defeat. And in fact. What happened at the end of Parshas Va'era? Parshas Va'era ended with Barad. Right, we're wondering what was so noteworthy that about Makas Arba between Barad and Arba. So, what 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 changed? That we're starting a new Parsha by Arba. Why? What's Pshat? Like like why why is Arba the new Parsha? It's not just Arba. It's Hashem telling you uh, telling us a specific message about about what His plan was all along. Or at least part of what his plan was, right? Because let, let's think back to what is the point of Arba? What was the function of Arba? What did the Arba do? The Chumash specifies, and we had we had a Musr minutes on this, that Arba Arba's function was to eat up all the food that was left over from Barad. Now here's the question that we began to address in Musr minutes, but we didn't finish it. And the question is very simple: Why? Did Hashem need to do this in a two-step process? Take away some of their food in Barad, take away the rest of their food in Arba. Why not just take all of the food away in one fell swoop? Right? The Chumash gives a scientific answer to explain, a, um, a physics answer to explain, um, and maybe even a, um, a botany. I don't know. I had, I'm not even sure. The study of these, the, the stalks and the crops to explain why certain crops survived the Barad while others did not. I'm not asking that. I'm asking a theological question. I'm asking um, a, um, a question that, you know, that we can understand through the, the, the plan of a Kaddish Baruch Hu in our parasha to understand Hashem's Maisim. Why did Hashem not do it in one fell swoop? A human needs to work in step-by-step process. Hashem doesn't need to do that. Why did Hashem take away some of the food in Barad? and then the rest in Arba. I think this is part of what demonstrates that Hashem is literally, or I don't know if we can call it literally, but Hashem is toying with Paro. Hashem says, I want you to know that I made a mockery of Paro. What's the nature of that mockery? Well, you could have looked at the quote-unquote competition. Right? Look at Paro and the Khartoumim. They're, you know, they're holding their own for a couple of the plagues. And you might say, that this was a battle of kings. Hashem on the one side, you know, the, the, the Jewish king and god of the world, and then there's the Egyptian god, you know, Paro. And you might have said, look, this is a battle of kings. Hashem says, I want you to know that there was no battle of kings ever. And the whole time, I, that Paro, in fact, was not a king to me, but he was a pawn. Right? He wasn't a king, he was a joker. Hashem says, I toyed with Paro. I I, I, I lured Paro in and I got him to make the, you know, and I don't, I don't know Hashem didn't make any decisions for Paro, at least till maybe this point. Um, and even then, I wouldn't say that Hashem necessarily made decisions for him. But Hashem is saying, you know, uh, um, I, when people tell the story of, of, of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, I don't want them to think that there was ever a competition between me and Paro. Paro is a joke. And in fact, I, I, I was toying with him the, the entire time. And it was all so that I can continue to put on the show that I'm putting on for Kalal That Hashem, in a certain sense, is quote-unquote flexing his muscles. He's, he's showing you what he's able to do. Now, does this make Hashem a bully? So we'll have to come back to that in a moment. 
But what I want to point out is that this is not only demonstrative in the fact that, um, you know, well, again, it's demonstrative in the fact that we have two steps of taking away Paro's food. Paro should have naturally said once most of his food was gone, and it could have been all of his food, right? We said in Endeavor last, um, last week, Hashem says to Moshe, you know, I realize I could have killed them all out in Endeavor, but I kept them standing. Endeavor didn't just have to strike the animals, it could have stricken the people. And you know what? I didn't do that because I wanted my name, the same name of mine that, that Paro denied he has ever heard of. So I want that name to be known throughout the world. So what does Hashem do? Hashem takes away some of Paro's food. Then he holds the rest of Paro's food on a string, kind of like a, um, a carrot on a string, you know, to, to lead the animal along. Hashem says, you want, you want the carrot? Come get the carrot. Come get the food. I have your food. Last chance. Are you going to do tshuva? So Hashem is really toying with Paro. There's a little bit of food left, and Paro is about to be dumb and lose all of his food. Now, at this point, though, Hashem says, this is, not, you know, I, I, this is really not as much about Paro, says Hashem in our parsha. This is, I want you to know this is not as much about Paro as it is about me. And that, that, that's what the Makos really are about. It's about Hashem, and Hashem kind of delineates two jobs of, the, uh, of, of, of why he hardened Paro's heart. Because he says, on the one hand, again, I wanted to, to, to perform my wonders. Why? So one, again, we said um, that, I, first of all, I wanted to put on the wonders. I wanted them to see my wonders. But also, I want you and your children to be able to talk about this, and your grandchildren. Right? So what's, what's Hashem effectively saying? That there are two audiences to the Makos. Right? Because at a certain point, Paro might have seen enough. You know how we know this? We said, again, what's so special? What happened between Barad and Arba? Well, if you look really closely at the end of Barad, that's the first time that Paro admits to being wrong. Right, the, the Chumash says, let me just find it. Paro, Paro gives in, it says, I've sinned this time. Hashem says, I, he says, Hashem's the Tzadik, I'm the Russia, my people are the Russia. And he, and he says, Daven for me. The very end, what happens? So, at the very end of Barad, the Chumash says, Once Paro saw that everything went away, he, conti- he continued to sin. And he hardened his heart. He and his servants. So, right now, this sounds to a certain extent like Paro made this mistake. Paro had already seen the error of his ways. He has already admitted defeat in a certain regard and even so even after being defeated he continues to fight now some might say that that's respectable right some might say that that's honorable look at look at how paro is fighting the fight and look at hashem who seems to be bullying him so here's where i want to come back to the question was hashem the bully or was someone else possibly the bully the muscle that i think of is imagine you have a, a wimpy kid and a dumb, wimpy kid. This dumb, wimpy kid decides to mess with the big bully in the room or the big, strong person. Let's not even call him the bully, the strong person in the, in the school. He's a, maybe you can call him a strong, friendly giant. 
and he start he starts to pick a fight because he he just says like you know he decides even though he's a wimp he decides he wants to assert himself maybe maybe, maybe he's not a wimp maybe he's the second strongest guy in the room but he's nothing compared to this friendly giant and he's going to start a fight with him so what's the giant going to do the giant's going to you know maybe um be a little bit rough with him maybe punch him in the face maybe hold him down on the ground right and now the the, the this giant has his foot on the head of the other guy, he's holding him down, this wimp, or, and, and this guy's trying to fight him, and he's swinging around, and he's flailing, he can't do anything. So at a certain point, the, 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 the big guy is going to say, are, are, are you going to stop now? Are you going to stop trying to hit me? And maybe the wimp says, yeah, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll stop bothering you. And then he's going to take his foot off of his head, and then what's going to happen? If the wimp decides to swing at this, at this clearly stronger individual, he's an idiot. Not only that, he's a bully. You know why? He's actually the bully because he picks on people that are, young, are, that are smaller than him. And yet, even after he admits defeat to the big guy, he's still, taking, he's still swatting at him. And, and why? At this point, this is not honorable. This is pathetic. And this is what Hashem is trying to teach us. You can try to pick a fight with someone... And they'll, they'll, they'll defeat you, and they'll even let you live. The friendly giant is not looking to kill the other guy. He's just looking to, to, to stop this guy from thinking that he's all of that, and certainly to defend his own honor when the guy's swatting at him. And this is what Paro's doing all along. Hashem is holding him down. Hashem is saying, I'm going to let you go now if you let them go. And... All along, Paro's not giving in. And what we're seeing now, at this point, it's not about Paro anymore. Because Paro is a lost cause. Paro's a lost cause because he's already lost, and he's still swatting, he's still flailing, he's still trying to fight. And it's a joke. And Hashem says, I want everyone to know at this point that this whole thing was a joke. That Paro was a pawn in my master plan. So, in, on the one hand, says Hashem, I wanted to appeal to the Egyptians. I wanted them to see what I can do. But more importantly, the rest of the, of the show is for, the, is for you. You, Moshe, and your, and, and your nation, Klai Israel, the nation that's going to be my nation. They're all going to talk about this for generations to come. And if you think about it, Makas Choshech fits this theme as well. Who is Makas Choshech for? Is Makas Choshech for the Egyptians? Primarily, no, it was for the Jews, if you think about it. The Hebrews at the time, there were two reasons for Makos. Either because there were not righteous um, Bnei Israel that had to be killed at that time through, during Choshech because they didn't want to leave Mitzrayim. And the other group was the people who could see the riches and eventually know what to take when they leave Mitzrayim. None of that really has to do with Paro and the Egyptians. Right now, there's a, the, we, we learn who the real audience of the Makos is, and it's Klal Yisrael. And this gets us to the second part of the Parsha. The second part of the Parsha focuses on, you know, Makos Bechoros, which obviously does strike the Egyptians, but apparently it was not a given that the Bnei Yisrael were not going to be stricken by the same Maka. What at this point was happening with Makas Bechoros? Why exactly did Hashem require the Bnei Yisrael to put blood on their doorways, something that we don't do today? 
there's a lot that we don't do today. Uh, again, I, I gave you the sources earlier for the differences between Pesach Mitzrayim and Pesach Doros. Chazal talk about um, a number of differences between the Pesach that they celebrated then. And why are the laws interwoven into the story? The answer is really the same answer to the Russia's question. The Russia says, Maha Zoslachem, which, by the way, is a Pesach that comes right out of our Parsha. What is this avoda to you? The answer is, no, Ba'avor Zen. The answer is that, in fact, the avodah, the mitzvahs were part of the story. Uh, I said it was going to be an obvious answer. Of course the Hilchos Karban Pesach had to be in the story before Makas Bacharos, because if not for that, the Jews wouldn't have survived Makas Bacharos, at least not the firstborns. They needed the rite, the ritual of Karban Pesach done exactly the way Hashem said it be done, and if they didn't do that, they would not have been saved. And this is what we essentially um, say about the Russia. Had he been there and not performed the avodah, had he been so complacent, he would not have been saved. The Avodah is part of the story. Why is this part of the story important? It's important because if you were a member of the Bnei Israel and you did not recognize at this point that Hashem had made a mockery of Paro, that there was never a competition, if you were still on the fence, so then that was a big problem and you had to make a decision. right? And, and this, this goes back to the other question. Why does Hashem need us to put blood on the doorway, to put a sign so that he would know that, 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 that we you know, were the Bnei Israel, that this is a Jewish home? So we look really closely. Hashem, although he does say, I'm going to see the blood and I'm going to pass over your house, right? that's where the Lashon of Pesach comes from, but Hashem also says that it should be a It's for you to be a sign. Chazal or Rashi quotes that the blood should not be on the outside of the doorway the way we see in all the pictures. The blood did not go on the outside of the doorway and on the lintel and on the mezuzos. The blood went on the inside. Only the household members could see it. And why? It's because the sign was not a sign for Hashem to see, oh, where are the Hebrews living now? Obviously, it's not the case. The sign was for the Bnei Israel themselves. And this is in a twofold sense. It was a sign for them so that they should, they should know which side they are on. But not only that, but it's, it's not just Hashem needs to know who, um, who, who's who. We needed to identify ourselves because we needed to identify ourselves. Not so that Hashem would know who we are, but that we would be telling Hashem whose side we are on. It's interesting that the Lashon of Pesach is similar, is the exact Lashon that Eliyahu Anavi says when there are Bnei Israel, when they're not sure, do they want to serve Hashem or do they want to serve Baal? They want to serve the Avodah called Baal. And Eliyahu says, On Masai, how long are you going to be poschem al sifim? You're going to be poseach, Pesach. You're going to be hopping back and forth between, and you're going to try to straddle both sides of the fence to serve both God and something else. Well, guess what? At this point in the Yitzhak Mitzrayim story, there was no option. There was no option of, uh, there's no middle option. It wasn't, I'm going to serve Hashem and I'm going to serve the Egyptian God. That's no longer on the table. Right? Before, it was just a question of, does God exist? Right? Is God, maybe he does exist, but is he involved? Is he just a competitor with the Khartoumim? Is he just a competitor with Paro's black magic? Is he something else? Is he involved in the land? Is there anyone like him in the land? And Hashem was teaching everyone, yeah, I'm here. Not only that, Paro's a joke. And not only that, but by the time you get to Makas Becheros, you have to, you know, now you have to decide whose team are you on. Are you on the ancient Egypt team, the team of Paro and the Egyptian gods? Or are you on Hashem's team? 
that's lechalos. That's for you to be a sign. If you put the blood in the doorway, you make that decision. And the laws, the, the halachos of Karban Pesach, they, 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 you know, this is what it's all about. This is what, why, why it's a part of the story. They, were, they, they had their first Pesach Seder in Mitzrayim where they were making the decision of which side they were going to be on. In fact, Rashi tells us why the, um, there's so many laws that were different between the Pesach Mitzrayim and, and, uh, and the Pesach for generations to come. And Rashi actually quotes this. He, um, I'll give you the exact pl- location of this Rashi. This Rashi can be found... Rashi can be found in Parak Yudbe's Pasuk Vav, where Rashi basically says that even though Hashem had guaranteed to the Avos that we were going to be redeemed, we had no mitzvos to show for it. In other words, we had maybe the schos of the Avos, but we had no merit of our own. And Hashem said, therefore, I need you, um, based on the Pasuk in Yechezkel, that we were wallowing in our blood. Hashem needed to give us, because we were naked, we had no mitzvos at all. And at that point, Hashem said, I need to give them something, something to hold on to, something to grasp onto. So Hashem gave them Dam Mila and Dam Karban Pesach. But that's what they were putting on the doorway. They were putting on the doorway the, the, the sign that will, it's, it's not just a signal that Hashem should know. It's a rite of passage, literally. Their passage out of Mitzrayim. This ritual, this is what's going to get them through. It, it, it's a ticket. It's not, it's not oh, are you Jewish? In this story, you don't just get out for being Jewish. This goes back to what we said in the Muslim in Parsha Shemos. Jewish by name, at this point in the story, was not enough. If you were Jewish, if you were a Hebrew, if you were a Ben Yisrael, that was not enough if you did not do this. If you did not observe the mitzvahs. Yeah, the, the avoda means a lot. If you want to be a part of Hashem's people, you can always opt out, and you can always opt in. And, 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 you know, when we talk about the reason, the purpose for which Hashem created the world, which we've been talking about since the beginning of Parsha Panorama, right? Hashem created the world, He started with um, all of mankind, but mankind didn't do its job, so Hashem had to isolate and focus on one individual who would become a new nation. Well, it's not just that Hashem chose a favorite and that was going to be His person. Anyone, the heir of Rav, we had people leaving Mitzrayim with us. Are you with us or are you against us? Do you want to be part of Hashem's people? And if not, you know, that's okay. If you want to be a guy, that's, you know, that's fine. But just realize the conduit through which you can receive any blessing is if you're attached to Klaistral in one way or another, whether you're going to subject yourself to them or whether you're going to join them. And you, know, you can gain a Kiddush as Yisrael. Anyone had the opportunity. And guess what? A Ben Yisrael was not granted his status either. Just like a guy could have joined a Ben Yisrael, even though he can never stop being Jewish, but he could have opted out. Many of them, in fact, 80% of them opted out in Makas Choshech. 80%, the Midrash tells us, died during Makas Choshech. And anyone who would not have done Makas Pechoros, oh, sorry, they wouldn't have done Karban Pesach, they would have experienced Makas Pechoros as well. And the, the, there's so much that's connected to this. But this is what it's going to take for Hashem's people to become Hashem's people. And again, the conduit through which the entire world can achieve the ultimate blessing for which Hashem created the world. So, we, we, you know, we, we have like a, a very, hopefully a, a better picture, certainly what's happening in, in, in Makas Becharos and in, and in Bo at large. But this is, this, this is what this, this Parsha is about. It's about recognizing what our role is. You know, you, you can see the Makos, and you can say, wow, God is really cool, and he exists and stuff. 
But if that doesn't come with the devotion and emotional conviction and the actual decision to, to, to abide by Hashem's will, then it's nothing. Right? All the makos, in a certain sense, created us into a receptacle for, for a receptacle for God's will, that we can start doing God's mitzvahs. Of course, that's why the mitzvahs are a part of the story, and it's not just a separate section. The mitzvahs are a part of the story because that's what made the makos worth it. If the makos happened and you said, oh, wow, this is all really cool and stuff, but that's it, then, then it's not worth it. If for generations you are going to tell this over to your children, and for, on this basis you're going to be serving Hashem for the rest of your life and doing the mitzvahs, that will make it all worth it. That's what makes us into Hashem's people. And that is what I believe Parshas Bo is about. And that takes us through Parshas Bo. And Bez Hashem, we're going to continue this story, the emergence of Klai Yisrael's Hashem's nation. Right now, we are still in conception, right? Um, I've, I've heard, I think Rabbi Foreman made this connection, that leaving the Egyptian homes with the blood on the door was like exiting the womb in a certain sense. We're about to be born, we're about to leave, and in, in Bo, we start walking out of that womb of Egypt. And in Beshalach, we're going to see a little bit more how that comes to fruition. In the meantime, have a wonderful Shabbos. Thank you for joining us here at Parsha Panorama and, of course, on the database.